And welcome to this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast, a place to discuss the cricketers, matches and politics from the so-called Golden Age, immediately preceding the First World War. My name is Tom Ford. Billy Murdoch was a colossus of Australian cricket in the 19th century. He captained Australia in its first victory on English soil, giving rise to the Ashes, and as a stylish but determined batsman, he scored the first triple century in Australia and the first test double century. He's often been called Australia's answer to W.G. Grace. But he courted controversy too. Bankrupted in his 20s, he secretly married the daughter of Victoria's wealthiest gold miner without his permission. He emigrated to England in 1890 as he and his wife aspired to make it in Edwardian society, often living beyond their means. He even played a solitary test for England in South Africa. But what do we make of Murdoch's cricketing legacy today, and is he unfairly forgotten? For the first time on this podcast, I welcome two guests for an episode. Richard Cashman is a sports historian based at the University of Technology, Sydney. He is the author of 12 cricket books, as well as his memoirs, Khaki Hander, writing on cricket, sports history and the Olympic Games. He has won the Australian Cricket Society Literary Award on three occasions for his book on Australian cricket crowds and his biographies of Fred Spofforth and Billy Murdoch, the latter written with my other guest today. Rick Sissons grew up in England, playing and watching cricket in Derbyshire. He is the author of 11 cricket books, including The Players, which won the English Cricket Society's Silver Jubilee Literary Award in 1988. His most recent books are The Glory and the Dream, the 1903-04 MCC Tour of Australia and the so-called Golden Age, J.T. Tildesley in Australia, and with Peter Schofield, When the Kangaroo Met the Eagle, the 1913 Australian Tour of Canada and the United States. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank nice you. To, yeah, nice to be here. So, uh, Billy Murdoch, Cricketing Colossus, published in 2019. Uh, where did this idea uh, generate that you needed to write a biography on Murdoch? And how did your collaboration come about? Well, I, I might start. It was obvious uh, that uh, Murdoch was Australia's first world-class cricketer and a great captain, and um, so there was a crying need for a biography. And it's interesting to speculate on why he'd been neglected so much in Australia. And I, I think my main answer, he, he became an Anglo-Australian. He identified with the British side, and he uh, migrated there. And there's an interesting story. Um, Murdoch, uh, half his life he lived in England, and it, Occasionally he came back to Australia mm. and he came back in a test match, but he collapsed and died. Mm. And instead of getting buried in Melbourne where the test match was, his body was embalmed and shipped back to England and he was buried in Kensal Green. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, why we wrote this particular book, I mean, I seem to recall that both of us finished particular projects and we, were, we just happened to be talking about the fact that there wasn't the biography of Murdoch 
seemed like the most, at the time, the most notable big figure in Australian cricket who hadn't uh, hadn't been a biography. But we both lamented the fact that this was a massive project. Murdoch had played um, so many tests and so long for Australia. Then, as Richard just said, had gone to England. He carried on playing. He played until he was well over you know, 40, playing with W.G. Grace at London County. It just seemed like a big project. So um, as we were both sort of toying with the idea of doing this book, we thought, well, why not collaborate on the book? And then you know, we broke up the book into different, had a draft of a chapter breakdown, broke it up, and then used to swap chapters and work together uh, collectively on it, um, and there you have it. Mm. My recollection is slightly different. Right? Oh, okay. is probably right. No, no, no. You can um, see what, see what you think of this. I had written a biography of Fred Spofford, mm. and Murdoch was his captain. Now, very much linked. So I thought it'd be great to write a biography of Murdoch, and I started writing a biography, and then I heard. Someone else was uh, oh, right. interested in writing uh, or starting to write a biography, and I thought, "Oh, mm. what, what?" So, but I know Rick quite well, so we um, contacted each other, and it was terrific because uh, we have different skill sets. Um, I knew a lot more about the early eighteen eighties, Spofford's era, and he knew a lot about the late later period because he knew C. T. B. Turner. Uh, but also, Rick Rick is a bloodhound on ancestry mm. and he found out all these details about Billy's father that he was a bit of a rogue and, uh, yeah I mean that was quite interesting really because um, once we'd started on I mean the, the sort of framework of Murdoch I suppose was quite clear in terms of his cricketing history but um, the other books I'd done prior to that Turner and Duff for example um, I'd used ancestry a lot and built up family trees and contacted family and so on and so forth. So that had become quite important in the work I'd done on these other books. So through building the family tree of Billy Murdoch, we actually came across a lot of quite astonishing information about him that he never himself ever spoke about. In the few interviews that he gave, say in Cricket Weekly Record of the Game or other magazines, he never said, for example, that um, on his mother's side, the family had a convict background, for example, both um, his grandfather and grandmother, who arrived in Hobart, were both convicts. Of course, the family never mentioned that mm -hmm. because at the time that was something one did not speak about. Yes. Um, and then, as Richard just mentioned, um, his father, Gilbert, was an American who his mother met in the United States um, in California during the gold rush, and they came back to Australia. But Gilbert Pinckney Murdoch, we discovered, was somewhat of a rogue and... Um, eventually went back after a spell in prison in Beechworth for a year. Um, he went back to the United States where he remarried, even though he had a family in Australia. And he seemed to have a happy bigamous life in the United States where he'd originally come from. So that all really came out of, um, out of ancestry, which mm. I think is a really invaluable tool these days for any biographer because when Richard and I were originally working years ago, you were trawling through, you know, what was that machine called that you wound stuff on? Yeah, you know, micro microfiche, oh, yeah. Microfiche. Oh, oh, my yes. God. You know, working your way through newspapers and mm. microfiche was terrible, hours of it. And then you never really got um, the family background. And it was then through Ancestry that we got in touch with the Murdoch family 
there was we found a great granddaughter who was also keenly interested in the history of the family who was living in Sydney and a, a great grandson who was living in the um in the UK we would never have found those people mm. without and they had a lot of bits and pieces and photographs we knew more in the end about Murdoch Billy Murdoch than they did which is often the case when you mm. when you find families um, from cricketers but nonetheless they gave us some great information some great leads and some great family photos of course yeah it, uh, yeah can i just come in yes. a big challenge writing the biography of billy murdoch is that he didn't write a lot himself yes so we don't really know how he felt at key times of his life when he's involved in controversies mm. so you end up speculating he do this yes yeah um Rick, you mentioned um, his background, and I have to say, reading the book, it was one of the things that leapt out at me was his uh, American um, uh, ancestry. I had absolutely no idea about that. Was there anything else for you both that surprised you about Murdoch in your research, Uh, something that either leapt off the page at you or you found was uh, missing that was quite obvious? Well, for me, again, it was the, in the family and the social side when they'd gone to England because, I mean, we the story of him um, marrying into the Watson family, mm. uh, the very wealthy J.B. Watson family, marrying the daughter, his daughter Jemima, was in, you know, that was it, around, people knew that. But um, there was a collection, we f- stumbled across a collection of letters uh, in the Watson archive in Victoria which um, show what the situation of Billy and Jemima Murdoch was in London, because they were, after, after J.B. Watson died, Jemima got a £600 stipend, which were the basically they were living off. And once they went to England, he just enjoyed himself playing cricket. Um, so they were living off that and £1,000 out of the inheritance, the Watson inheritance for the five, their five children. But they were continually writing begging letters to the executors of the Watson estate, saying they were, you know, impoverished, they couldn't pay their bills, they couldn't do this, they were thinking about what on earth they're going to do, whether they're going to come back to Australia. Mm. And that was also reinforced by the odd note in the, these archives of you know, schools asking for payment. And then Billy Murdoch got, ended up in court because he didn't pay a bill for some a pigeon shooting. Mm. And another letter cropped up, not in this archive, but in another one where he was asking a player from London County, would he lend him £25? So that really surprised me, I think, um, that we actually then got a picture. Superficially, you would have thought, oh, they were doing incredibly well. They were part of a very wealthy family. He was playing cricket with G. Grace. But behind the scenes, there was this huge turmoil going on in their lives. So that, that was a bit of a revelation, I must say. Uh, for me, um, find those letters in that art in the Watson archive. Um, one thing that quite surprised me is uh, after the uh, insolvency business is that uh, Billy uh, moved Kudamandra mm. uh, in the middle of nowhere. He he wrote, and it, I uh, he stayed there for about five years. Mm. And I, I don't really understand why he did that. And there's a wonderful story of eighties wonderful 323, um, he uh, played for the first three days. Then there was a court case in Kudamandra. So he went by train, mm. late train, 
did the court case, came back the next day and um, appeared in the final day of the match. Mm. So that's something. Couldn't do that these days, could you? Yes. And this is Kudamundra, obviously now famous for the birthplace of Bradman, but this is before Bradman was born, of course. So why he went to Kudamundra, it is... It is an unusual choice. The middle of nowhere to get away from nowhere. it. Yeah. yeah, because he'd been declared bankrupt mm. in, in Sydney. There is an odd connection to Bradman, though, in Kutamundra. Not that he went there for that reason, but um, as you said, um, Bradman was born there. But he, Billy Murdoch knew uh, Bradman's grandfather because Bradman, Bradman's grandfather was farming in the area. And we know they must have known each other because they were both on the, um, the local race course stewards committee. Which is sort of nice, sort of irony. You say you've got Murdoch, Trumper, Bradman. There is a sort of lineage there, mm. um, which is is quite mm. interesting. There is a sort of slight family connection. It also surprised me. You talked about this: is his attitude to money, aspired to live sort of really, really well, and actually a bit beyond their means. So they're they're always uh, short of money. Part of that is because he hung around with W.G. Grace too much. I think that was part of one of his problems, probably overextended himself financially. Mm. Grace was, they actually lived in the same street in Sydney for a time, although, you know, they'd be off at country house cricket batches or beagling or playing, and they played golf together, they played bowls together and so forth. Although there is one very sad moment where um, Billy says, laments the fact he knocked on W.G.'s door and he wasn't there and wondered when, he, when he'd see him again. I think it sounded slightly as if WG had pushed mm. him aside. But when, um, when the job came up at Lords for secretary of the MCC, Billy Murdoch applied, but he didn't even make the shortlist. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, that was reinforces the point yeah. Richard just said. You know, yeah. Yeah. In, in English society, in the cricket establishment at Lords, he was an outsider. Yes. They weren't having a bar of Billy Murdoch, yeah. the Anglo-Australian. I mean, not, not only an outsider, but he was a bit of a like a cowboy sort of, you know, always sort of pushing boundaries and et cetera. Um, listening to you both talk here, I'm getting a great sense that you don't always agree on things, which is healthy. I mean, I've never written a book, let alone co-written a book. So were there aspects of writing this book that you disagreed on in terms of research and the interpretation of that research? Yes. <laughs> I think there's only one. One R- major one. Yeah, Richard is has a, a much well actually the two i think richard has a much r- more rigorous stronger academic background than me um there were two one minor thing richard insisted we had footnotes i don't think i'd written a book up until then which had footnotes so the book was is meticulously footnoted mm-hmm. and then there was the question of did murdoch and the australian team bet in the ashes first ashes test which became known as the first ashes test i really wanted to put that in the book because we had circum well we had a newspaper article albeit published in the 19 late 1920s or 30s and a few newspapers which detailed um the the money that charlie beale and several players won betting on right. australia they weren't betting against themselves they were mm-hmm. betting on australia in that test match but richard's because he's more rigorous, I guess, than me. He said, nope, we need two. We need to have two ver- two sources right. to verify this. So it didn't go in. Uh, subsequently, Rodney Ulliate did find a second reference to this. So Still won't go in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, if there's a second reprinting of the book, perhaps, or a special edition, we can add it as a, Maybe, as a footnote. Because I think you're still sceptical about this. Yes. You? Um, my view is that the newspapers were gossipy in that mm. era. And... Uh, 
things were floating, all sorts of things were floating around. And one newspaper in some obscure town would publish it and another would copy it and go on and on and on like that. I still feel it was out of character because he was involved, in, he played in a match at the Sydney Riot of 1879 mm. when Lord Harris uh, criticised the bookmakers who and said that the bookmakers fomented the riot, riot which no doubt they did. Um, and then when they went to it, England in 1880, uh, because of that uh, taint on Australian cricket, um, they didn't have, they couldn't get matches very many. So it seems to me that Murdoch probably, well, I, I find it hard to reconcile. But it's possible. But I don't think it's <laughs> the, the, the only <laughs> argument against that, uh, well, the argument is that Billy Murdoch gambled a lot. He loved the horses. Mm. There's lots of anecdotal evidence that, you know, he lived in, when they lived, when he was playing for Sussex, he never missed a race meeting in Sussex. He was always at the race meetings. Um, and there's a story in another book um, where he would, he came very close to winning a very large amount of money uh, on the horses. Again, that's not substantiated anywhere. It was just sort of anecdotal evidence. So I think he did like to gamble. And there's another funny reference um, when um, Jemima writes to the executors of the Watson estate. She's writing to um, McKinnon, who was her brother-in-law. Uh, her elder sister had married Malcolm McKinnon, who was Lord Mayor of Melbourne, was an MP in Australia, made a fortune uh, on shipping frozen meats, went back to England, lived in a light country house, and made a lot of money. Anyway, she says to um, McKinnon, you know, I, I love Billy despite his one fault. And she never says what the one fault is. What is this personality fault? We've no idea, and it's quite interesting to speculate. Um, could it be gambling? Possibly. But there was something, obviously something there. You know, I don't, there was never any stories that he was a womanizer. So, I, yeah, could he have gambled? put money on the test, I think it's quite possibly good. Mm. See, there's so much about Billy that we don't know and fully understand. But I still admire Billy because he had great concentration. He was a brilliant batsman. He was able to concentrate and hit big hundreds Mm. in an era. Like when he got the 321 for New South Wales, no previous New South Walesman had even got a century. Yeah, Mm. And the other thing is... He was a great captain. I think in the 1882 tour, uh, test, famous test, he was calm and he kept his head. Yes, and, and a great leader of men because we learn from many of these tours to England of the Australians in the 1880s and even I think the 1912 Triangular Series, the group were completely unruly because for whatever reason the captain at the time wasn't able to reel them in but it sounds like Murdoch was a great leader on and off the field yeah that's definitely true and it's certainly true of the particularly in the 1890s I mean he the last um tour he was captain on was 1890 itself when they uh Murdoch uh, and the family and his mother actually used that as an excuse to move to England but he was you know, a good captain of the 1890 side. There was some talk that he might have captained the 1893 side, which was a complete shambles of a tour. 
rifts and fissures inside the team. And people said oh, the only person who could have controlled that team actually was Murdoch. And um, there was some possibility he was going to become the tour captain, but um, and he'd been negotiating um, with Cohen, Victor Cohen, and in the end, Victor Cohen reneged on it and said, Australia doesn't want an uh, Anglo-Australian captain. Mm. And you know that I think that tour could have been quite different if Murdoch had a been um, he could have controlled the likes of George Giffen and his brother Walter. Rick, how do you think he exercised? that control? Well, I mean, there are a couple of stories of the, uh, well, I think first of all, because he was such a great player, I think there's obviously yeah. a massive amount of respect. The front. Yes, absolutely. But he, he also seemed quite determined that that story where somebody questioned whether they should bowl or not, or, and he just made them bowl all day. Yeah. Mm. Quite, seemed to be quite authoritarian at times with particularly uh, as bowlers. And there were also times when you, Old, you know, Turner and Ferris for ridiculous amounts of time. So mm. I think it was the combination of the two, the respect and the authoritarian. And Spoff was very much a prima donna, mm. uh, and he was able to manage him. And, but somehow Murdoch was able to get the best out. Be a sport and join the fun, jolly good fellows, everyone. Come along, be one of the boys. <laughs> Richard, you mentioned earlier uh, in the podcast about uh, Murdoch's death, which happened at the MCG in 1911 during the test match. I think he died or collapsed in the long, the old long room. Um, why, and this is how you begin the book, why did you start with his death in this particular publication? You know, I thought it's just so unusual. Someone died at the MCG. Why do you embalm? The person, mm. the cost, shipped them all the way back mm. to be buried with his mother, Kensal Kensal Green yeah. Cemetery. So I thought it was a pretty, pretty mm. dramatic moment. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I was really happy to do that because I didn't really want the book to. Although of course it is. I mean, the book is linear, but you know, taking that and putting that right at the front, it also really epitomizes, as you said, what Murdoch was. His, you know, desire to be so um, Anglo-Australian and be part of the English you know, world and Edwardian England, which obviously in the end I've actually failed to be. But, yeah, I thought it was good to put it right up the front like that. It really epitomised the whole nature of Murdoch and his life. Mm. And using contemporaneous reports as much as we can from 1911, what do we know about the actual death? Uh, was, it a, was it a heart attack? Uh, I believe so. That's right, isn't it? Heart attack. Heart attack or stroke? I can't remember. I don't mm. know. It was a, it was a, a stroke, and he had a health problems. He eventually retired, I think, in 1904 from London County, and the, he'd been repeatedly his doctor had repeatedly told him, that, you know, and there were seasons when he didn't play a whole season. Remember, he's overweight, right? And he is mm. now in well into his forties. Um, he's obviously had some sort of health problems. He had weight problems. So in that period, from after he left London County to 1911, um, there were obviously continual health problems. Yeah, and then he had a, a stroke at the MCG and died nearby. I mean, to, to look at a photo of Murdoch through modern eyes, it is remarkable to think that he was a leading sportsman of his mm. day. The same with Alfred Shaw, who bowled the first ball in Test cricket, looks anything but 
modern cricketer anyway. So um, yeah, if you look at that photograph taken in Coventry for WG's 50th birthday and there's Grace and Murdoch together, two most unlikely sporting mm. figures you could imagine. You know? Yeah. But he had a good keen eye. He was a good pigeon shooter. Yes, that's true. Yes. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he was a very good pigeon shooter. I mean, he obviously carried on pigeon shooting for um, virtually throughout his life and competed internationally at pigeon shooting. Mm. Um, a really bizarre sport. When he was in Melbourne, I recall that he was involved in some club there and they used to bring in 25,000 pigeons a year to shoot. I mean, just like mass carnage of poor old pigeons. Mm. Billy was in the forefront oh, there, fun. banging great away. Fun. Well, yeah, I, great fun, yeah. I wonder if uh, Bill Laurie knows anything yeah. about this, about his, uh, f- you know, the predecessor as Australian captain. Yeah. Um, now, you've, you've mentioned this briefly, and I just want to go back to um, his, I wouldn't call it first retirement, but he stopped playing cricket in 1884, I think. As you say, Richard, he was at the top of his game as a batsman and as a leader, and he just suddenly decides to stop playing cricket, and we don't hear again from his about his cricketing feats until that 1890 tour. So as his biographers, what do you make of that five-year break? Why do you think he did it? Well, I think he was fed up with cricket because there was a big fight about gate money. Mm. Uh, it came, he also had the problem of clandestine marriage. So he had a lot of, uh, he didn't say anything about it. So I don't know mm. what he actually felt. Mm. I mean, there seems to be, well, okay, so J.B. Watson, Jemima's father, did not approve of the marriage and did not approve of Billy. Um, Seems to question about the mother because she gave Jemima the money to go to Melbourne to marry Murdoch. But um, J.B. Watson, who'd, who'd gone to Victoria and made money on the goldfields, a uh, Scottish um, migrant, you know, was down to his last two shillings and then he struck gold. But he did not like Billy Murdoch and he probably also knew about Billy's father of dubious character because he was also in Bendigo. So he didn't like Billy. Billy had married... Jemima, they were now in Kutamundra, and but there does seem to have been some sort of reconciliation. And Billy starts to play cricket again immediately after J.B. Watson died. So sort of impression we have is that um, as part of this reconciliation, um, the children, they've now got two children, um, to J.B. Watson, ensuring Jemima doesn't get completely cut out of the will. It looks, and then... Billy also begins to get a bit of legal work when they've moved from Kutamundra to Melbourne. He gets work from um, the Watson um, businesses and from McKeon. And it looks like there may have been some sort of reconciliation there, but the condition being that Billy doesn't play cricket. Sure. And then he surmised that because he immediately, Watson does, he starts playing again. Mm. Yeah. And he joins or leads the 1890 tour to England. So this is five years later. Um, but I think you mentioned earlier, Rick, he ties it in with the opportunity to move his family to England. Why did he leave Australia and why did he want to live in England? Well, I think part of that is what Richard's already said about him wanting you know, this Anglo-Australian myth and wanting to be, you know, people still perceived England as home. home yes. And they still talked about cricket tours being, oh, we're going to play at home, i.e. in England, which was all really bizarre. Um, a secondary point is that Jemima wanted her children to be educated in England. And so that was part of the move. 
they'd got two children already and they had three more once they um in uh the early years they were in England and one one boy went to Harrow, one boy went to Repton, and the girls went to various private girls' schools. So that seemed to be Jemima pushing to the, the, her children to have an education. That's mm. the only other reason they were so keen to go. Mm. Um, so let's talk about that 1890 tour. And just to preface this um, for the listeners, uh, we are primarily talking about the back end of Murdoch's career because this is the golden, so-called golden age, Rick, uh, the golden age podcast. So, But we will mention his earlier career just to uh, contextualise. So this 1890 uh, tour, again, to modern ears, it sounds... Um, uh, just so foreign, the idea that you would play 40 matches over there. These days, they arrive two days before the first test and play golf as a warm-up. But back then, um, they play various first-class matches. Um, reading your book, um, uh, you know, I learned that Murdoch is probably the best batsman on the Australian tour. He scores more runs than anyone else, um, including two first-class centuries. Um, but on the test front, he doesn't have the most successful time. Um, he only scores, um, I think, 19 runs and a high score of nine. Where was Murdoch at this point in time with his test career? I mean, was test cricket now beyond him, do you think? You can answer that. Well, I think it was, yeah. I think his career clearly falls into two parts. The early part where Richard's spoken about these massive and you know, feats of concentration, um, the triple century, the double century, plus that innings where uh, Grace scored, was it 152, and Murdoch went in and scored 153 to win the game oh. and win a sovereign, uh, which he always kept on his waist. Yeah, it was a draw. It was a draw, was it? Yes. Okay, but he won a sovereign. Yes. He won a sovereign off Grace, had a bet. And I think compared then to later years, his, yes, definitely, his career had completely, by 1890, I think at that point, really, they, he was there to captain and lead the side more than anything. Mm. Uh, I mean, and the fact he only scored two, two first-class centuries as well, that was against, in the, all those matches, against some bowling attacks that were pretty mediocre. Mm. Yeah, I think well and truly passed his best by this point. So perhaps his test career was coming to an end, but he still obviously felt like he had a lot to give cricket at the first class level. So he's now uh, with his family living in England and he applies to play for Sussex. He applies to Lord Sheffield. It all sounds very formal, Um, but there was a two-year residential qualification, so he couldn't technically play first class cricket for two years, um, not until 1893. So how did he spend those two years was he able to play some other form of cricket or did he take up other forms of entertainment one chunk of time when he went on that tour organized by walter reed surrey amateur who was paid a ludicrous amount of money 750 pounds by the south africans uh, Mm -hmm. to bring the side out and murdoch was paid i think 250 or 300 pounds to undertake this tour way more than any of the professionals were getting uh, for that tour. So that's one thing that he did. And then he becomes, therefore, one of the few 
players who represented both Australia and England. Yeah. Um, the rest of the time, well, he was he there were there was plenty of first class cricket which wasn't county cricket. So he could play for the MCC, he could play for the Gentlemen of Sussex, he could play for um, Lord Sheffield's estate. There'd be games country there, house country house cricket. Mm-hmm. He could play that. Um, he had some arrangement, it seems, with she- Lord Sheffield. Once he qualified for Sussex, he, he was being paid some sort of retainer by Lord Sheffield for a few years that he would qualify and become captain in 1893. Mm-hmm. So there was you know, plenty of social cricket. Yeah available to him in that time mm-hmm. um, of, well, sort of reasonable. St- I mean, he only played, I think, nine first-class matches in the, some of those, in those one of, the, one of those years. So the quality of cricket wasn't necessarily all that high. But, you know, playing for the MCC and matches with the, would have been mm. reasonably good standard, sure. And in between the cricket matches, he just shot a lot of pigeons, I, I suppose. Oh, so. yeah, like beagling and hunting. Mm. Yeah, you know, he... A little later when he's playing for London County, you know, you find newspaper reports that W.G. Grace and uh, Billy Murdoch passed through on their way to Lord right. So-and-so, you know, some mm. local paper report mm. the presence of Grace and Murdoch travelling through. Yeah, and, so. and again, it, it really explains uh, that or shows how he does want to become this English amateur or a member of the English society. I mean, he's, it's not like he's getting a job as a baker or something, you know, middle to lower class. I mean, he's clearly wanting to immerse himself in that society at that time. A, of course, he was a qualified solicitor. Mm. But he didn't practice. He never practiced. In when, England. No, in England, he didn't mm. practice at all. He obviously felt he didn't either want to or need to, and they lived off the stipend mm. um, from the Watson estate. Do you know, was he any good as a solicitor? <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? It's like asking if Grace was any good as a doctor, I suppose. I mean, I mean he did win cases in Kutamandra, remember? They, he's, he went down there initially and said what a shambles it was and he immediately took up cases and won three out of four and if the fourth person had taken his advice, he would have won that too. Mm, <laughs> yeah, and again, back to the discussion about him as a leader, he, we can assume, was you know a good public speaker, I imagine, and a good rallier of men perhaps, so he knew how to hold court. There are references to him speaking at you know, various events and functions, and as captain, uh, he would have had to because that would be expected. Yes. The Australian captain would speak. And I think he enjoyed that. Yeah. Mm. So what do we make of this solitary test for England um, against South Africa, in South Africa? Um, we can talk about this later in the episode about his legacy, but... Do you think it somehow sullied his reputation as an Australian, one of the great Australian cricketers, captains, literally the captain in the match which formed the Ashes, and here he is playing for the opposition. Uh, has that somehow perhaps misrepresented who he was as a person and his reputation as an Australian cricketer? I don't think so. I think by the time he went on this tour, he was sort of forgotten Australia. Mm. When you look at the fact that he's wasn't included initially in the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame and his reputation, do you think that the fact that he was Anglo-Australian and he played one Test for England, do you think that was one of the reasons? He was no, there were other reasons. I think out of sight, out of mind. Right. And um, David Frith said in the preface that Australians didn't like more or less discarding Australia and mm. becoming a, an Englishman. 
it's a funny tour though when you read some of the stories of that tour you know it was like one of those early tours by um to the United States or to Australia by the England professionals. You know, there were strange, long journeys by horse and cart and 18-hour trips. Mm. And Getting across flooded rivers and mm. flooded rivers, and sleeping on Sleeping on, yeah, exactly. I think Sharing the, uh, one knife and fork. <laughs> yes. So, oh my God, what a I think the, I think the batsmen were allowed to sleep on the tables of this hotel and the bowlers had to sleep on the floor yeah. or something. It's uh, a far cry from what cricketers are. Uh, given these days when they tour. Yes. Sure. Um, uh, returning to Jemima, his wife, so we've touched on it a bit already, but Murdoch wasn't always the best with money. He had all sorts of financial issues. And then he marries Jemima, who is the daughter of literally the wealthiest man in the colony of Victoria. Um, this might be hard for you to interpret, but was this a strategic move from... Uh, from Billy to rectify his financial issues. Um, you say he doesn't give the biographer much in his own writings, but is there any, I mean, you can't really say whether he married for love or not, but do you think this was a strategic move on his part? What do you think? Well, it's quite interesting because there were one or two funny comments in the press where it says, you know, Billy Murdoch's done incredibly well. He's married, he's you know, going to marry Jemima. And he did have... Um, Jemima, he'd had two engagements before that were broken off. But they did meet on, Jemima had gone to England and was on the way back on the boat, on the same boat as the players. Um, so I, I, I don't, yeah, it's hard to, I, I don't think Billy was that, you don't get, I don't get the impression it was on sort of strategic thought, you know, a bit of gold digging by Billy. He spotted this, you know, young woman who was, and just turned 21, I think, and therefore able to make her own decisions and could effectively, in inverted commas, elope. Um, and they, uh, throughout their life, they just get the impression they're very fond of each other. As Richard says, you know, it's hard to, at this distance, without any more direct evidence to say anything to the contrary. But also, um, he, he was, you might say, something of a catch himself. I mean, he was captain of the Australian cricket team. He was a handsome fellow, scored incredible number of runs. He got a great profile, you know, mm -hmm. current terms, great high profile. And he was a solicitor, whether he yeah. used his uh, qualifications or not. So. And he was sort of a bit of a celebrity. So you could understand why Jemima might be also um, attracted to this yes. man on mm. the boat coming back as well. So let's return to actual cricket. Um, what sort of batsman was Billy? Um, and did he did his style of batting change uh, from the period we're talking about uh, in the 1890s to what it had been in his more cavalier youth as a batsman? I don't know what his style as a cavalier youth was, but he was a, a, he played strongly on the offside, uh, and he didn't hit sixes. He hit a lot of fours, mm. and he was very good on the, uh, the cut, the drive, and what do you have to say? Well, what about that innovative dog shot? He oh, yes. Yes, yeah, sort of lifting mm. up his leg. leg and, uh, like a dog 
relieving himself. And it, yeah. this was a legitimate shot. It wasn't. Mm. It was considered a legitimate shot. There are photographs of it and of Lee playing this shot. I, I, was it a way of make, playing a shot which scored runs to a, an area of the, where there traditionally was no field? It's just like the reverse uh, reverse sweep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Was it also a pre-runner to the leg glance? Uh, the leg glance is almost attributed entirely to Ranjit Sinji, perhaps. Um, so I'm just trying to um, recreate this in my mind for the listeners, Richard. It was a right-handed batsman, well, left-handed, but a batsman lifting, if he's right-handed, lifting his left leg and hitting the ball through his legs down to yes. uh, uh, fine leg. Ideally, you'd uh, hit a well-pitched, if there was a well-pitched up ball, mm. You could, uh, it's a kind of form of leg glance and mm. it's where the fieldsmen weren't, so you, you get four. Mm. And it required um, good sharp eyesight. Uh, Victor Trumper played the shot too. Yeah. One, not, uh, not all batsmen played mm. it and Trumper certainly played it and, you know, he's the greatest batsman of that era. So, um, with, I, Yeah, I possibly think there's a photo, one of Beldum's, Famous photos of Trumper. I mean, we talk about the famous photo of Trumper, but all the others, I think there is one of Trumper actually in a similar pose with his legs sort of spread and looking down to fine leg as if he's yeah. just hit the ball down there. So, um, And not to mention, you have said already, Richard, his great level of concentration as a batsman. Uh, the 3-2-1 he hit was in an era when centuries were very rare. Concentration and stamina. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which was quite amazing. That, uh, mm. And he got lots of double centuries. But that that really is concentrated, isn't it, in that period of the 70s and 80s? Because these big scores, even though you played a lot of cricket at Sussex, which had a notorious featherbed wicket where a lot of really big scores were made, um, there is a really sharp contrast. Yeah, yeah, obviously. So in 1893, he finally passes this two-year residential qualification and he not only um, qualifies to play for Sussex, but he becomes the captain as well. He also, in 1893, publishes a book called Cricket. What do we make of this book? And as his biographers, uh, is there much you can get from this book in terms of who he was as a person or was it very much a... Uh, instruction, instruction manual, right? Very little about Billy, right? Yeah, it's a sort of instruction manual, and you know he got paid fifty pounds for it. It's flat fee, fifty pounds was pretty handy. Mm. Are the instructions still relevant today, or has time passed it? Well, I I have no idea because I didn't really, you know, it was always no, a bowler throughout my life, so I didn't right. really pay much attention to batting. But <laughs> the amazing thing with his batting. Bowlers directed their attack outside the on the off stump or outside mm. the off stump, mm. and there was very little leg side play. Um, in fact, certain times playing at leg shot was considered bad form. Yes, so it's mm. very, quite incredible to be able to play a, a variety of cuts and leg cuts and square cuts and mm. drives to get through that field. But uh, that's yeah, it was so different then. It was, and so it was seen as improper for a batsman to purposely play shots onto the leg side. And it's interesting you bring this up, Richard, because he's playing for Sussex. Sussex was also, uh, in a few years' time, 
where CB Fry and Ranjit Sinji played. Yeah. And they are often credited as beginning the um, appreciation or acceptance of leg shot yeah. cricket uh, yeah. as a batsman. Possibly Murdoch had some influence there. I'm not so sure. Maybe. Um, hard to The claim. overlap is quite small. Uh, uh, Ranji succeeded uh, Murdoch as captain mm. so six, but I think there's only one season where they uh, overlap. Right. Fry a little later or around the same time, but um, uh, so I, 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 I don't know about the speculation. I, I, I've not seen anything suggested that um, Billy might have been instrumental in that. Mm. Sure. I think he was a bit shocked when he got relieved of the captaincy. I mean, Sussex, you know, were a poor side and they definitely improved with him as captain and obviously as a, a batsman. He then went on um, to play for London County, which really suited him playing with WG Grace and a funny sort of setup. I mean, they, they played first class, a lot of first class cricket and a lot of club cricket. They were playing all the time. But they had this sort of strange Murdoch was called Mother. And Grace was called Father, and they all had these funny nicknames for the amateurs in the side. It was all very hearty. public school. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Johnners and uh, yeah. I was going to say Freudian, but perhaps yeah. there's another. But they also <laughs> say other people who write uh, playing at the time that you know, Murdoch was a big influence on Grace, and there was no decisions made without Grace consulting Murdoch. I mean, Grace wanted London County to be, play become a first class county in effect, but the MCC wouldn't have a bar of that, so they just carried on playing. They played a, a lot of first-class counties and so By this point, I think Billy's enjoying himself. Mm. You know, he's getting late 40s. He was born in 54, so he's, you know, enjoying himself playing cricket with, with Grace and other notable people who were playing for London County while they um, may have gone through residential qualifications. Mm. You also play a lot more first-class matches in England uh, than you do in Australia just because of the number of counties and the, the amount of cricket that could be afforded to be played at the time. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode on the later life and career of cricketing colossus Billy Murdoch. Thanks to his biographers Richard Cashman and Rick Sissons for joining me. Keep an eye out for part two but in the meantime, revisit previous episodes, including those on Warwick Armstrong, Wilford Rhodes, Tibby Cotter, Monty Noble, C.B. Fry, and K.S. Ranjit Singhi. My name is Tom Ford. Bye for now. <laughs>